I'm hoping that as we go through the book of John together, you become more and more in awe of God, more in awe of who Jesus Christ is. You know, there, there is a misunderstanding out there that I want to address before we get into our study this morning. There's a misunderstanding that we are all by nature, that we're all by nature children of God. People say, oh yeah, he's, a, he's everybody's father. He's the father of all. And that wrong understanding comes from a false philosophical connection between God being the creator of all and us being his creator. So they say, well, he must be the father of all. It's a false, false correlation. And that's not what te uh, Scripture teaches. They then say, well, doesn't Genesis 1.26 say that God made us in his image, in his likeness? But that is not referring to us being children of God. That is not what Scripture is teaching there. All mankind is created in his image, in his likeness, but not all mankind are his children. I think we need, need to keep that in mind this morning as we dive into John, that not all are children of God. As a matter of fact, some of you are very familiar with John chapter 3. Jesus talking to the religious leader Nicodemus. And in that interaction, Jesus says something in John chapter 3, verse 7. He says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. We must be born again. Eternal life depends on it. Jesus said again in John chapter 3, verse 3, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So we have to understand that just because we came through the natural womb of our mother, that does not make us a child of God. Nor is it that we can will ourselves into becoming a child of God. Nor can any amount of effort or desire cause us to be a child of God. We must be born again. This morning, the title of our message is just that. Born of God. We must be born of God. If you're taking notes this morning, title of the message, Born of God, we'll be looking at John chapter 1, verses 6 through 13. And would you join me in honoring the public reading of God's word by standing to your feet? In your Bibles, John chapter 1, or in the leaflet of the bulletin, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, as we stand before you this morning, we stand with your word in our hands, before our eyes, that we come to this place to study truth, not the opinion of any man. And God, what hope you give us through your word, that we can become children of yours by being born again. Father, teach us through the power of your spirit what that means, what that looks like, that for those of us who have been born again, we would rejoice and exalt you and praise you. And for those of us who have never been, today would be the day that we are born of God. To you be the glory, now and forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John chapter 1, starting in verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. 
He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So reads God's holy and errant infallible word. Church, please be seated. For those of you that were with us last week, we opened up with the first five verses. The Word. The Word being Jesus Christ. The One who has been in all of existence, who always was. Who has created all things. And here we begin to transition and we speak of somebody named John. We're going to look at three points this morning when we talk about being born of God. If you take your notes here, the three points we'll look at. In verses 6 through 8, we're going to look at the witness. In verses 9 through 11, we're going to be looking at the light. And in the last two verses, verses 12 and 13, we're going to look at the inward calling. As some of you are taking notes, I'll go by way of a reminder of who wrote this book of John. It is the Apostle John. The problem, and I want to clarify it right on the forefront, is we're going to be speaking of another man sent by God whose name was John. That John is not the writer of this gospel. The writer of this gospel is the Apostle John. We could also call him John the Evangelist. It's going to help us refer to which John are we talking about when we talk about who wrote it and who's he speaking of when we start reading in verse 6. So understand, there are two different Johns. John the Evangelist is the Apostle John, the writer of this gospel. He is the one who God used, inspired him to record this book of the Bible. But there's another John that is sent from God. That is John the Baptist. Everybody clear? We're going to be looking at two different Johns. John the Baptist, the one that we'll see is sent by God. And then when we refer to John the Evangelist or the Apostle John, he's the one that recorded these things. Inspired through the Spirit. Are we clear or clear as mud? Are we good? <laughs> All right, clear. Point number one, let's look at it. The witness. Looking at verses 6 through 8 specifically about the witness, we see there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Who is this John? There we go. There we go. Passed our first quiz. Good job. That one is right. That is John the Baptist. The first thing we notice about him, he was sent by God. John the Baptist was the last prophet sent by God before Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Luke chapter 16, the beginning of verse 16, he said the law and the prophets were until John, speaking of John the Baptist, but since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. What's that good news? The good news of Jesus Christ. Now the focus is all about Christ. But 700 years or more before John the Baptist was ever born, there's prophecy about him coming. In the book of Isaiah, we read about him, that he would come and be a forerunner to the Lord, to the Messiah, to the coming King, and that he would point everybody to the Messiah. We read in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. That is referring to John the Baptist, the one who would come and point people 
to the Christ, to Jesus. If you're not familiar with it, Luke's gospel in the first chapter goes into all about how John the Baptist was born, the relationships going in, more about the life of John the Baptist. And if you're not familiar, write it down, take a note, read Luke chapter 1 later. We're not going to go there now. Because John the Evangelist, the one who penned this gospel, he was more concerned about the role of John the Baptist. He was concerned that John the Baptist came to serve a role, a function, and that was to be a witness. John the Baptist was to serve as a witness. And some people even refer to John the Baptist as John the witness, if we could throw in more confusion above everything else. But John came to serve as a witness. This word witness in this gospel is used 33 times. 33 times. The word witness is a legal term, and it refers to legal testimony given in a court of law. That's what it means to witness, a testimony. And we see that over and over in here. Look at verse 7 with me. We see the purpose that John the Baptist was sent. Here's the purpose. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, look here, that all might believe through him. That was his purpose. That all might believe through him. I want you to think about this. If John had to give a testimony about the light, what does that say about the people? I mean, think about it. Imagine I brought this huge LED light in here. And I turn on all those watts and I shone it right at you. And you're like, Pastor, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't see anything. What does that say about you? You're blind, right? If you don't see the light shining, you must be blind. John had to come because the people were spiritually blind. And he had to point them to the Messiah. They needed to be directed to the light. They needed to be told about the light. And that's what John was sent to do. In reference to John the Baptist being sent by God to bear witness about the light, I love what John MacArthur says. He says this. He said, people believe in Christ through the testimony of witnesses like John. They are the agents of belief, but Christ is the object of belief. That people would point others to Christ that it is Him. He is Savior. We read about John. He comes on the scene. And John actually gets a pretty big following. People coming to him from all over. But we read in verse 8, he was not the light. He wasn't it. He came solely to bear witness about the light. But if you're familiar with John the Baptist's ministry, he had a big following. Crowds would come out to him. We read in Mark chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Wow. He's making an impact. But guess what? He's not the light. He's not the one. We just read in verse 8, he was not the light. But Jesus himself esteemed John very highly. 
Listen to what Jesus said about John. In Matthew chapter 11, beginning of verse 11, he says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. No one greater, born among women, greater than John the Baptist. But guess what? He was not the light. As a matter of fact, John the Baptist came to point people to Christ. That it was not him, it was someone else. He said in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, the latter half, John the Baptist says, He who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. Or in some of your translations, worthy to untie. What do you think about that? Jesus seems this man as no one greater, born among women, than John the Baptist. John the Baptist says, the one who's coming, who's so much mightier than I, not even worthy to do the lowliest slave job possible. He's so far greater. John the Baptist didn't point to himself. He had crowds coming out to him, and he did not point to himself. He did not declare his own righteousness. He came to bear witness of the light. He came to point people to Jesus. Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And much like John the Baptist, we who are believers are now sent by God. You ready? Hold on to your seats. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you too are sent by God. Not to point people to ourselves, but to point people to Christ. That we are witnesses of the truth of Christ. That if we have been born again, if we have been transformed and renewed, we go and tell others of the good news of Jesus Christ. We have been commissioned to bear witness to others that they might believe. But we must point them to Christ. We must elevate Christ above all. We must give glory to God in everything. James Montgomery Boyce, he warns. Listen to this warning he sent out. He said, whenever a Christian layman or minister, writer, teacher, or whoever it might be, gets to thinking that there is something important about him, he or she will always cease to be effective as Christ is. Think about John the Baptist. Great crowds came out to him. And yet he pointed to Christ. He said, whose sandal I'm not even worthy to carry, to loosen. He elevated Christ, pointed to Christ. He came to bear witness about Christ. And we, as believers, are to bear witness about Christ. As the pastor of this church, I'm not to come up and give you my opinion so you can say, well, our pastor said. It doesn't matter. I'm to point you to Christ. Christ said. Christ commanded. Who is Christ? I'm to explain those things to you. Point you to him. When outside these walls, I'm to point others to Christ. And so are you. You must do the same. Listen. We must also live like Christ to be effective witnesses. And you have to understand that just living like Christ is not witnessing. Some people say live like Christ, and if you need to use words, then use words. No, people have to hear the gospel. They have to hear the words of Christ. That's what Scripture dictates. But we must live it 
so that we're a testimony of what we're sharing to them. That they see the evidence in us that we would be witnesses to. Our lives must verify the message, the transformational message of Jesus Christ. We are witnesses for Christ. We read in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writes this in chapter 5, verse 20. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Do you realize that this morning, if you're a Christian, if you have been born again by God, that you are now an ambassador for God? Think about that. What does it mean to be an ambassador? You represent the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. You are a witness that wherever you go, you get to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Point number one again was the witness. But we're going to move right into point number two, the light. In point number two, we're looking at John chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. The Apostle John writes, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. We've now transitioned from John the Baptist to the true light. And it's interesting the word that the Apostle John uses here for the word true. He doesn't use the word true that would be the opposite of false. He used the word true that would be the opposite of partial. We would say something like we want the whole truth, or we want the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. We would use it that way. So basically what he's saying is Jesus is the light, the whole light, nothing but light. He is the real, genuine light of all humanity, is what he is saying. It is Christ alone that is the illuminator of all things. He enlightens all darkness and gives illumination spiritually. We see in verse 9 that he gives light to everyone. You guys see that? That's huge. It's something we should be thankful for. Because Jesus came not only for the Jews, but he also came for the Gentiles, which all of us, minus Larry, we got we got one Jew in the house, but the rest of us, we rejoice that he came from all, not just the Jews, but Gentiles. And we are part of that. In John chapter 8, verse 12, we see Jesus speaking. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus Christ is the true light. Looking again at verse 9, we see the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Notice the last part. Coming into the world. The Jews were waiting for their Messiah, their coming King, who was coming into the world. You know, we just had Good Friday and Easter, and usually during that time we look at some prophecy from the Old Testament. One that we often read is Zechariah 9.9. says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Anybody have an idea of how Jesus came into Jerusalem? How he was presented as the king of kings? Exactly as it was prophesied. But here is a twist. Jesus came to save the world, but the world would reject him. I want you to keep that in mind. We see this in verses 10 and 11. John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. 
he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. That's a sad, sad testimony. Jesus, the Word, who created all things, came to the world which he created. His creation. And yet he was not known amongst them. He came to his own people. And yet they too rejected him. That's interesting what we read in Romans chapter 1, that they're without excuse. In chapter 1 of Romans, starting in verse 18, we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be made known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, listen, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. We had some people who went and did park evangelism yesterday, and one of the people they talked to wasn't a, a professing atheist. Guess what Romans says? Became futile in their thinking. That they're without excuse. That man comes up with all different ways to excuse themselves away from God. That if I can convince myself there is no God, then I'm not accountable to a God. That man would rather believe that this is it. I live today and I'm dead tomorrow and that's it. There is no afterlife. What a sad life. But we have so much greater of a hope than that. So much greater. So how can these people reject Him? How could they reject Christ? Look, Christ came to serve and not be served. Think about that as a starter. Christ came to demonstrate love to the unlovable. He came to give his own body on their behalf. He came to reconcile us back to God. Christ was the true light. And yet they rejected him. What do you think about this? What does light do when it shines, as it does on every man? What does light do? Well, it exposes the works of darkness. When Jesus Christ came into the world, he was a light such as the world had never seen before. And man hated him for existing simply because he revealed how dirty and vile their lives were morally. That's it. He was light. He illuminated the works of darkness. Jesus did that then, and guess what? He still does it today. If you're a Christian here this morning who is walking in the grace of Jesus Christ, there's some people who don't want you around anymore because there's immediate conviction. You haven't said a word. But because the light, which now is in you, Christ, shines, and they're immediately convicted, you might hear someone say, Oops, I'm sorry I said that. Pardon my French. Pretty sure that's not French. But all of a sudden there's a conviction. You didn't even say anything. Same thing. Light illuminating darkness. 
You know, when the light shines upon somebody, the first thing they discover is that at the very heart, they're a child of darkness. Jesus said this in John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Jesus said, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things, listen, hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Jesus said that. He said people hate the light. They will not come to the light because their works are exposed. Those who have done wicked things, well, let me ask you this. Simple question. Who of us have done anything that is wicked in the sight of our holy God? Now, if we were raising hands, all of our hands would be up. We are all guilty. We have all done wicked things in the sight of a holy God. Thus, according to Jesus, our natural response to the light would be to hate the light because it exposes our darkness. You guys following this? That's what Jesus said. I want you to think about what the problem is here, though. If our only hope is in Christ Jesus, if the only way of salvation is through Christ, but we naturally hate the light, then how can we be saved? If the light comes and we say, we don't want anything to do with it, I'm going to run from it. I'm spiritually blind and can't even see it if I wanted to. How can I be saved? How does this work? It would seem that we're all doomed. That we all have confessed. We all know that we have sinned against the holy God. And yet no one comes to the light. They do just the opposite. They flee. They hate the light. But here's the beauty. There's glorious hope. Jesus came as the true light to give life. And that's what we're going to see in our third point this morning. Point number three is the inward call. Point number three is where we're going to get our hope this morning. We've seen John the Baptist come and give a testimony, bear witness to who Christ is. We've seen the true light who has come. Men have rejected him because they hate the light, lest their deeds be exposed. And here's where we find our hope. John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Amen. So verses 10 and 11, they showed the rejection of the true light. But here we see not all will reject him. We see, but to all who did receive him. Now, for those of you that are tracking with me and you're staying engaged, your brain has got to stop and go, wait a minute. If by nature we hate the light because it exposes our darkness, how could any of us receive him? Right? That's a problem. If Jesus says, by nature, by our depraved state, we're going to reject the light. We don't want the darkness exposed. How could we receive him? Well, hold that in the back of your mind. Just put that back in there. We'll get back to that in a little bit. So hold on to that question. Here we see there are those who receive Christ who believe and trust in the name of Christ. And because they do, we see they're given the right to become children of God. 
Remember the questions we started off with, talking about the children of God? Many people think everybody's a child of God. Uh-uh. Not what Scripture says. Here it's the response of those who receive, who believe that they're given the right. And we're going to unpack this a little bit. This right, it's a Greek word, and it means freedom. It means ability. It means authority, power has been given. That it's only through Christ granting us power and authority that we can become children of God. I hope you're seeing something being unfolded here. God is really big. And God is able to do all things. That with man, it would be impossible. But with God, all things are possible. As children of God, we have a deep relationship with our Heavenly Father. It's not a static one. It's not like just talking to a wall. But there is an intimate relationship. We see this word in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. It says, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Abba means daddy. That when we become, when we're given the right, granted the power and authority through Christ to become a child of God, that he becomes daddy. Not, what's up, daddy? What oh precious relationship that we would have with our Heavenly Father, that He would be Daddy. See again, looking at verses 12 and 13, but to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Church, we need to be born of God. Your Bible's open, you're highlighting, highlight that last piece of verse 13. It's of God. In other words, we must be born again. There's no other way to have eternal life but to be born of God. Here's the other amazing piece of that. Being born of God is completely a work of God. It's called regeneration. I'll give you a definition of that. It's long, so that you try to take notes, good luck. Regeneration. It's the work of God's Spirit in which He changes the spiritual condition of a person, bringing him from death to life. It is the beginning of all of the moral changes in the believer, and it results in a life of ongoing change. That's called sanctification. And it ends in the complete transformation of the believer into the image of Christ, and that is called glorification. Regeneration is being born again. Being born again. Well, how does that happen? Can I just choose, okay, I want to be born again. I really, really, really desire to be a child of God. Can I, can I, can I? Can I do some religious duties and get in? Well, look at verse 13. Here's where this all is contingent upon. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In order to be a child of God, we must be born of God or born again. John the Evangelist says here, we cannot simply just be born of blood, meaning nothing from our natural birth guarantees that we will be a child of God. This addresses the Jews of the time who would say, hey, we're children of Abraham, we're okay. You guys remember that argument? Well, 
Interesting, Jesus is pretty direct about this. He says in John chapter 18, verses 42 through 44, Jesus says to these, these Jews proclaiming they're, they're okay, they're Jews. He says, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You ready for this? Verse 44. Ready? You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yeah, pretty clear. Pretty clear why they would also say crucify him. Don't like that message. But when he declares he is God, they're not having it. Because we must humble ourselves before him. He must be exalted. But here John says, look, it doesn't matter about how you were born. It doesn't matter if you were born to a Christian family. It doesn't matter if your dad is a pastor or is a leader in the church. It doesn't matter if you're born to an affluent family or a poor family. It doesn't matter if you were born in America. That does not make you a child of God. John says here it's not of blood. It means that the Bible teaches that nothing that relates to your physical birth makes you a child of God. But that's not all. He then says, nor is it the will of the flesh. It doesn't matter how much you would desire to be a child of God, how much you get on an emotional high when you think of possibly being a child of God. There's nothing you could do to will yourself. Your flesh is not going to help you become a child of God of God. He says, nor of the will of man. This is any man-made system. Many men get caught up. If I do enough good deeds, then God will accept me. If I become really religious and, and find some kind of religious trends to follow, then God will accept me. It doesn't matter how religious or self-righteous you try to be. Your efforts cannot make you a child of God. You need to be born of God. You must be born again. So let's read it again together, verses 12 and 13, because there is a correlation. There's something that ties in here. Starting in verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, who gave, he gave the right to become children of God. Did you guys see that's still one sentence, one statement? It's still connected. Who were born, not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God who were born of God. This is really important that we catch this this morning. Notice that he starts off, talks about those who would receive, those who would believe, but those are directly tied to those who were born of God. What does that mean? It means that God initiates everything. That God is the author and finisher of our faith. It means that God is glorious. And why must it be this way? Because we are spiritually blind. We cannot see the light. We're also naturally depraved, so we flee from any light. We don't want to be exposed. There's a problem with that. None of us would ever come to the light. None of us. But God is a God of mercy. God is a God of compassion. God is one 
who would come and reach out to us. So remember that question in the back of your mind? If we hate the light, how would we come to the light? We must be born of God. That's what John writes here. We must be born of God. We must be born again. God must breathe life into us. We are dead naturally. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Scripture says a dead man can do God must breathe life into us. Going back to that interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus in John chapter 3. John chapter 3, starting in verse 3, Jesus talking to Nicodemus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus responds and says, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, if you don't know how literal Jews are, you can talk to Larry later. This is what Jesus said. It must be exactly this way. Like, they're going to go back in there. How's that going to work? Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. For us, we look at that and go, what exactly does that mean? But we have to remember who he was talking to. He was talking to a Jewish leader, a religious leader. And this comes right out of the Old Testament. In Ezekiel chapter 36, starting in verse 25, we read this. God says, I will sprinkle, listen church, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. And I will cleanse you. Look at verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is the work of God. That God would cause us to be born again, that we might have life so that we can receive and believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. God said he would do it, and he does it. He is the one that reaches down. A person cannot genuinely repent. A person cannot genuinely place their faith in Christ unless God has first given him life. God must breathe life into us. I love the way John Piper put this. It was also in your bulletin if you looked at it earlier. John Piper said, People don't believe unless God breaks into their lives, raises them from the dead, gives them a new heart, and enables them to see the beauty of Christ. And for those of you that has happened, you know exactly what he's talking about. That God has taken off the veil, illuminated my eyes to see the wonders of Jesus Christ. Church, it is God alone who saves. It is God alone who rescues. It is God alone that demonstrates love by breathing life into us, causing us to be born again so that we can respond to the gift of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. We read in John 6:63 that it is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is no help at all. We also read in James chapter 1, verse 18, speaking of, of him, it says, Of his own will, God brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. 
He chose to cause us to be born again. Again, Ephesians 1.5, He has predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according, listen, to the purpose of His will. God's will. To come and to rescue, to reconcile us back to Him. To open our eyes by breathing life into us. Here's how it works. The gospel goes forward. There's an outward calling as the gospel goes forward. That we are all sinners. That we've all sinned against the holy God. And that we have all are storing up the wrath of God against us. That on a day of judgment, we will stand and the wrath of God will be poured upon us. That, my friends, is bad news. The good news, however, is that God, out of his mercy and love, would send his son, Jesus to die in our place. And that upon that cross, He would take all of our sin, past, present, and future, and pay the fullness of those sins. It's called the propitiation. He satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. His death. And then He rose three days later so that we might be justified. That we also might be victors over sin and death. That we're no longer enslaved to sin. That is the good news. But it is only through Jesus Christ. But in order for someone to hear that and to respond to that outward call of the gospel, God must first do a work inwardly. The inward call must go and cause that person to be born again, to give them life so they understand and can hear and to know the good news of Jesus Christ. It's called the inward call. It's also known as the effectual call. We see this played out in Scripture over and over again. I'll give just one example. Paul and Barnabas are preaching. And they're preaching to the Gentiles. This is in Acts chapter 13. They're telling them that salvation has come to the Gentiles. And the people get excited. And we read in Acts 13, verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Listen, and as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. Huh? By the will of God. That God would breathe life into them so they may be able to believe that those who were once dead are now alive. They have been spiritually awakened. God has quickened the soul of the lost person. And once that person is regenerated, they're given a new heart and the ability to respond in repentance and faith. So we often put it backwards and we say, hey, if you respond to repentance, repentance and faith, look at what you did. But the reality is God has to enable us to do that. That if we sit here today and we're believers in Jesus Christ, we have to be in awe of what God has done on our behalf. It keeps unpacking. We look to the cross and go, man, that was awesome. But there's much more to be done. He must choose us to breathe life into us, to give us the ability to respond. Some of us would say, wait a minute, God chooses. Well, that doesn't seem fair. God chooses who he's going to pour his mercy out on? I always like when people want to be fair. We all confessed earlier, maybe you didn't raise your hand, but we've all sinned. If you don't think you have, the Bible says you're a liar. We've all sinned. And yet, sin is storing up the wrath of God for us. So if we want just fairness, guess what we deserve? Yeah, the wrath of God. That's fair. I sinned against God, stored up his wrath, and now I get it because I deserve it. 
So that whole fear argument is crazy because none of us would be saved. There would be no hope. We've all rebelled and sinned against the holy God, and we're all deserving of his wrath. But listen, God is rich in mercy. God is rich in mercy. We read in Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 16. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. See, being able to respond to the good news of Jesus Christ, to be able to repent and place your faith in him, is because of God. God is the one who has enabled that. It doesn't depend on our will. It doesn't depend on our ability. It is solely dependent on God's mercy. God's mercy. Church, this is an amazing truth. And if we're believers here this morning, it should cause us to respond, Lord God, if it's not of anything human, but solely of your mercy that we are saved, then how great is your mercy? How great is your mercy? I know some of us here and, and, and many all around, they don't like this teaching. They don't like what Jesus taught about this. Because they say, well, that's not what happened. I chose Christ. He didn't choose me. I chose him. And they, they push back. And what it attacks really is our pride. It flies in the face of pride. Because they want to say, look, I made the best decision of my life. I chose to follow Christ. And listen, if you are following Christ, that is the best thing that could ever have happened to you. But it is God who drew you to himself. It is God who gets the glory. The person didn't make the best decision of their life. Instead, God demonstrated his love by pouring out his mercy, his grace, and causing them to be born again, to be born of God. I kind of see it like in a, you know, the teeter-totters, the seesaws? Some people want them to be up on top and God to be down here. I have control. I made the decision. And they made God a really small God who really is not needed for anything. But scriptures paint it just the other way. It's this way. That God is high and lifted up and exalted and that we are down here dead laying on that other half. Doing nothing down here. But God, because he's a God of mercy and a God of love and grace, he reaches down and breathes life into us. He gives us life. Just the opposite of what natural man thinks. Some others will say, well, great, I'm glad I came today. Because if it all depends on God, I'm going to continue living waywardly, doing what I want, sending up a storm, and if it's God's will to save me, he'll just have to do that. Whoa. Now, just so you don't think I'm, I'm creating that statement, I've had people actually tell me that. That if this is dependent on God, then I will continue to go do what I want to do. Oh, but hold on a second. You have heard the gospel. You know that Christ came and died for your sins, died in your place, paid the penalty for your sin. You're not ignorant. People like to say ignorance is bliss. No, it's not. Ignorant of these things leads to death, eternal death, damnation. If the gospel makes sense to you, that God would send his son to die in your place, that you could be forgiven of your sins, 
the only reason it makes sense to you is because the Spirit of God has illuminated that to you. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, it says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Those of the, the message of the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ would make sense that I am a sinner and I need saving. That Christ has demonstrated his love to me that while I was yet a sinner, Christ would die for me. They can only come to reason that because the Spirit has given them that. We read in the next chapter of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the natural person, meaning the person without the Spirit of God, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him, their foolishness. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. God hasn't breathed life into that person. If you are here today and you're able to discern the gospel, if it makes sense to you, it's because God has revealed that to you. That God's mercy has been poured out upon you. For those of us who have already received Jesus Christ, we've already believed in the name of Christ and responded in repentance and faith, this should cause us to exalt Him. God, thank you for what you have done. That while I was dead in my sins and trespasses, you rescued me. You saved me. You breathed life into me and gave me the ability to reach out and respond in faith and repentance. But to those of us who haven't received Christ, you must receive Him. That means to fully believe in Him, to fully place your trust in Him, it means to respond to Him in repentance, which means turning from your ways and turning to God. Turning from that sin and turning to God. And if you are able to respond to this, friend, it means you've been born of God. It means you've been born again. It means you've been given the right to become a child of God. There's nothing like it. There's no greater thing in this life. There's nothing more important in this world than to be born again to know God, to know eternal life, and to have an eternal hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have made a way. That we in our depraved state would, would push away any light that was exposed to us. We would hate it for exposing any darkness. But even if it was exposed, there would be that spiritual blindness that we could not even see it anyway. God, so many layers of the problem, and yet you solved them all. Your will, O oh God, to give us the right to become your child, to give us the ability to receive Christ, to respond to him. God, I pray in this place there would be those now who respond to Jesus, who come to Jesus, who follow Jesus, who worship Jesus with their lives. God, I pray us who have come in this place and we have already been grafted in, and we already have known you, God, that we praise you evermore. God, that we understand all that you went through, Lord, to reconcile us back to yourself. For God, you are good. You bring life. God, I pray that together with one voice, we rejoice in the fact that you cause us to be born of God. We pray these things in Jesus' name.